This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time radio show, Politics Without the Boring Bits. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up today, we're talking the politics of vegetables. Yeah, there's a big crisis uh, going on, according to a new parliamentary report. There aren't enough people putting vegetables in the ground. There aren't enough people to pull them out of the ground. And as a result, we're all paying more in the shops. So that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, uh, let's take a look at what's going on in the news with these two. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yeah, it's Monday, so it must be Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. Hello. And in the studio is Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Now, I'm obviously, we're all very excited. We're digging out our ermine, ready for the King's Speech on Tuesday. Uh, Rishi Sunak, it's always one of these things where I, I always think if it's not a clever trap you're laying for the opposition, if you go around telling everyone, we've laid a clever trap! Uh, you know, it's all a bit obvious. And the, the latest clever trap is announcing annual licensing rounds for North Sea oil and gas exploration. Uh, the idea being that then the Labour Party would have to say whether or not they'd keep them and whether or not that's in keeping with their plans for net zero and therefore forces some sort of dividing line between the Tories and the Labour Party. I, I, I have to confess, Rachel, I find this one a bit complicated. I think it's a bit too clever by half, isn't it? Yeah. And also slightly depressing that this is your last shot potentially to set the legislative agenda um, for a parliament and you're thinking about politics and petty parties and point scoring rather than actually what do you really want to do with your gut time in government? Um, and in terms of this net zero sort of trap they're supposedly setting for the Labour Party, the complicated thing about this policy is it doesn't seem to be reducing energy prices in any way. It's a sort of, to most people, it'll look like quite a technical thing. And actually, in any case, the voters are quite ambiguous about Rishi Sunak's, at best, about Rishi Sunak's promise to back away from the net zero pledges. So if you're trying to send a... What you can do if you're the government is you can send a message about your values mm. through the through the King's speech. So, you know, what they're saying is we're backing away from net zero. And then the other thing that seems completely bonkers from my point of view is this um, Suella Braverman thing declaring that homelessness is a lifestyle choice mm. um, and sort of banning tents 
what are they saying about their values yeah. that is going to appeal to the general electorate? I mean, I could at least see the politics of the... T- but I don't think, actually, the solution to the Conservative Party is to move further to the right. But I could see... I mean, at least arguing over tents and homeless people is a clear dividing line which people can take a position on and have an argument about. And that's obviously what Sola Barman wants, is to have a constant argument about whether or not it's the right thing to say. Um, Libby, I just don't... Um, I, I'll be surprised, and obviously we've seen a lot of demo- demonstrations in recent times, I'd like to see how big the march will be, shouting, what do we want annual licensing rounds for North Sea oil and gas exploration? When do we want it in the forthcoming King's speech? Oh, it's also half-baked, isn't it? I mean, there there are various attempts at populism in the crime bill, you know, like, oh, crackdowns on shoplifting and so on, and uh, people having to attend their sentencing hearing. But then nothing about improving the terrible backlog in the courts, which is really serious, and the fact that the prisons are full. And then you have the tobacco thing, uh, but absolutely nothing about getting rid of these disastrous disposable multicoloured vapes, which are addicting and damaging children and are absolutely disastrous for the environment and waste of minerals and so on. It just it just feels uh, everything's kind of goes about a quarter of the way and then peters out in this speech. Even the, the leasehold reform thing is a good populist idea, but it still apparently doesn't include flats, you know, which is an enormous amount of, of problem there. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I, I'm not inspired. You know, I, I'm not bothering with the ermine this time. <laughs> I know you sit in yours. At, well, you said get the ermine out. I assume you sit in yours at home. Uh, yeah, at all times, at all times, at all times. It's, it's obviously vegan ermine. That's the, um, that's of course, the other, obviously, yeah. obviously. Polyester, you mean. Um, what would you, and there were other things which have been promised, which aren't in the in the as far as we know mm-hmm. promised uh, King's speech. Yeah, the one that I'm most worried about is there was uh, been promised for years now reform of the Mental Health Act, which, following a review by the very distinguished psychiatrist Sir Simon Wesley, uh, who was commissioned by Theresa May actually to do a review of a really outdated piece of legislation about who can be sectioned mm. and how and when, um, and, and and he came up with a very sensible set of proposals which have cross-party support. They've been through multiple stages of legislation. The only thing remaining is for the government, a government, to find time to make them law. They're not controversial, really. Um, And from what we hear, they're not going to be in the King's speech. And at the same time, there's a story in the paper today about thousands of autistic people being held in mental health um, facilities completely inappropriately, which is one of the things that this, um, the Wesley Act would sort out. So I think... You know, if it's back to the question of values, the one thing you can do is signal what you what you believe in. And this was one of Theresa May's burning injustices, yeah. but clearly not for Rishi Sunak. The other thing I find odd about it, Libby, is the tail end of a government, ahead of a general election, just putting in some things which are uncontroversial and will force the sort of people who normally complain about you to say, actually, this is a good thing, and that might chew up some time in the endless analysis post-King's uh, speech. It, it strikes me as sort of bad politics as well as, you know, arguably bad policy. Well, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, to think that somebody who reckons that really, especially after these latest accusations about the Conservative Party MPs, uh, a government which is clearly on the way out is not going to win the next election. It might win the one after, but not going to win the next election. So go out in a great 
blaze of smoke and fire and fireworks, you know, and say, actually, we're going to do this and this and this. And within the next year, we're going to get this going and this going. If a bit of positivity would be at least good to see, you know, even though the Labour Party could then sort of uh, abandon all of it, uh, you know, and, and say when it gets back into power. But it just feels it, it feels so damp and wet and depressing. And it's not a good look for autumn, really. <laughs> Damp and wet and depressing. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll find out. It's uh, what eleven thirty uh, Tuesday morning. The king will read out this uh, this list of. Bills. And it's also fascinating to think about what he thinks. So you know, he said a lot about the environment yeah. and the importance of net zero. His son is um, mounting a campaign on homelessness. So actually, when you, I remember this with the Queen. Sometimes you know, you'd hear her saying extraordinary things from a Labour government. Yeah. What's the king thinking <laughs> as he reads out these words tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, and I suppose unlike the late Queen, we know far more about what. Charles thinks about things because mm. exactly. he's told us over the years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My favourite of all the uh, queens, the late queens, reading out was when she uh, announced a levy on plastic bags. Uh, <laughs> as if she's never ever ever picked up a plastic <laughs> bag in Asda before. Um, uh, let's move on because this is an interesting, and this is someone we've talked a lot about before. Uh, but um, uh, about uh, school absences and how kids aren't going to school post-pandemic. Uh, it's a Peter Lampol, who's the founder of the Sutton Trust. Uh, said that school closures during lockdown led to a breakdown of the social contract. So basically parents are quite happy now to turn... Some parents, not all, but some parents are happy to sort of turn a blind eye now. They're working from home anyway, so it's sort of easier to let the kids stay at home. 140,000 pupils severely absent uh, in the spring term of this year in England, according to uh, the Department of Education. One One child in five missed at least one day a fortnight because it's just the habit has been broken. And I suppose Libby... Thinking about all the hullabaloo about what Dominic Cummings did or didn't say in a WhatsApp message last week, this is a part of the fallout of lockdown that just doesn't really seem to be being analysed by this inquiry. It's huge. I mean, we we know Anne Longfield has said, children's commissioner, you know, that children were simply not thought about. You know, nobody thought about education. Nobody, you know, it was it was just shrugged off uh, in in the in the panic over the over the pandemic and in the lockdown and the closing of schools, which a lot of people sort of had predicted would be a very bad thing, has proven to be a very bad thing. And the end of this sort of sense that getting children to school really is important. I think now there there has to be, as the Sutton Trust said. There's a lot of rowback on the old austerity, which affected all the school home support offices and services like that and truant offices. You know, it's just just not happening enough now. And for a lot of children, this will be a disaster. Um, and I, I think the, the linking it to working from home is there's probably quite a lot of truth in that. But it's not the only thing I think a kind of contract was broken and um, people and then the teacher strikes to be honest that hasn't helped either the sense of children being sent That's home when they, when they didn't have to be after the pandemic uh, I, I think you know it, it has to be taken very firmly in hand and again I, I noticed nothing in the King's speech about this well, I know you've this a lot Rachel through the uh, Times Education Commission yeah, I think Libby's absolutely right. I agree with everything she said. And I think there's a 
problem that it's not just parents who are to blame. I think you do have to blame the government because children were such a low priority. It wasn't important for children to go out to school for the government. So therefore, now the pandemic's over, families think, well, why should we force yeah. the issue? There's also, I think a lot. it's also related um, from what we heard on the Education Commission to mental health problems often. So children who feel now unable to go back to school for, for mental health reasons. And Anne Longfield, we spoke to on the Health Commission last week, actually, and she talked about how children are now having to prove that they have attempted suicide multiple times yeah. in order to get m mental health support. So um, it, that's back to, you know, something that the government could do, actually, but isn't. I suppose once, the, once a social contract is broken, Libby, what can you do to restore that? It's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're seeing this also about disorder in the streets and, um, you know, sort of uh, chaos and, you know, the, 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 public, the public realm. Uh, uh, it's very hard to row back from it and sort of go all Singapore. You know, it's, um, it, it's a difficult thing. But I think schools have to be made into something that, that kids want to go to and that parents want to have their kids at, you know, improvement in schools and, um, you know, smaller classes and all, all the massive improvements in education which we need and more enrichment and less focus on sort of desperate box-ticking uh, box exam and curriculum uh, requirements. All these things just need attention. Uh, things need to be made attractive. But I think the breaking of the social contract, that feeling that it's disgraceful for your children not to be at school, I think that's that's a much harder thing to crawl back from. But also, I think it's making clear that education is a priority for society yeah. and for the government and for families and that it really, really matters. Um, and somehow education has slipped down the list of priorities in Whitehall. So you look at the funding of health has gone up 42% since 2010. Education's gone up 3%. So effectively, wow. it's being cut. Is that in real terms? In real terms. Yeah, yeah. So you look at the difference yeah. in priorities. You can see what the government cares about. So no wonder parents and children are thinking, well, education isn't really important, when and it is the fundamental thing. You have to say, explain why it's so important. And somebody, I think it was Camilla Long's piece of the weekend, pointing out yeah, the amount that we spent on uh, Eat Out to Help Out and Test and Trace and all of that, and yet they rejected, and Rishi Sinat may well be asked this when he appears at the, um, uh, the inquiry, he rejected that fifteen billion pounds yeah. catch-up fund to the point that Kevin I've Kevin got, Collins Kevin Ke Kevin Collins, yeah. who was yeah. the catch-up czar, yeah. resigned over it. Yeah, and you think, well, actually, if you'd found that money, they can find money quite, you know, they do magic up money around the place. In fact, the, 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 there's a fifteen, 15 billion, billion pounds they've just found, found now. Through tax if they came out yeah. and said, we are going to spend this on catching up the nation's kids, as Kevin Collins suggested. Yeah. That's and a sort of big, bold idea, but rather than an annual licensing round for North Sea exactly. oil and gas. Plus also making the education more relevant and, um, you know, appealing to children and employers, uh, as set up in the Times Education Commission. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> quite right too, get the plug in. Uh, quite right too. And I suppose, never mind, you know, we talked about the break and the, the, we talked about the strikes and the uh, lockdown. The fact the schools are falling down and schools have had to shut... 
uh, or, you know, doing homeworking and all of that, that suddenly, you know, there's a constant stream of things coming along which basically say, actually, you don't need to come into school. Yeah, or it might be quite dangerous because might be concrete dangerous. might fall yeah, on your might, head. Might come down your it head. sort of feels as if we need a, a new deal, doesn't it? You know, a sort of a, a, a big, brave, massive, splashing new deal. You know, let's, let's mm. uh, concentrate entirely on schools and education on the young for a while. Yeah. Education, 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 as Blair said. As somebody once said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, lovely stuff. Right, let's turn our attention now to what happens when you get all all excited for a night out, you've got your tickets, you've been looking forward to it for ages, and it doesn't quite live up to Billy. Would you like to spend an evening with this man? How should we then envision the future so that we're all maximally motivated, unafraid, unashamed, even confident and enthusiastic? I'm going to puzzle that through hopefully along with you. Jordan Peterson, the philosopher, at the O2 last week. James Marriott, Times columnist, regular regular uh, panellist on, on the show as well. He was there watching it so that you didn't have to. Yeah, I was. It was a very weird evening, I have to say. I was quite surprised by um, seeing the adverts on the tube. Um, I mean, like a philosopher selling out the O2. Yeah, was it sold out? Uh, almost, not yeah. quite. There were some empty seats. It, as soon as I saw this advertised... God, a few months ago now, I was like, this is absolutely fascinating. What on earth is going on? Who's going to turn up to see Jordan Peterson at the O2? Will it be sold out? Does it work? A guy giving a talk to a, like, 20,000-seat arena? Um, what's he going to say? And it was, yeah, duly about... Well, actually, I think more weird than I expected. It was a really odd event. But what I found so fascinating is you said 40% of the people there were women. Yes. Well, this is a kind of misogynistic mumbo-jumbo, extraordinary to me that so many women would go. And they had no women on the platform whatsoever, as far as I can work it was, out. It was really interesting. And it just him? No, so he did it. He did. He did a kind of introductory talk. Then there was a panel which he chaired, which was absolutely terrible because all, he's, men. all he could do was talk himself. And the whole panel were men. Yeah. Yeah. So it was wow. him. Okay. Who was it? it? Was him, Douglas Murray, um, Bjorn Lomborg, this kind of climate skeptic, and Jonathan Peugeot, I think. I think his name is pronounced. Who is a carver of uh, Russian Orthodox icons and a YouTube celebrity. <laughs> and yeah, the whole the whole vibe was very weird. It was interesting because it certainly sort of, I don't know, in a slightly disturbing way, kind of disrupted some of my prejudices. Because I think the stereotype people have about Jordan Peterson is that it's all for, you know, there's a kind of negative stereotype that it's all for, like, incels and weird, kind of isolated, slightly dangerous young men. And the thing that really struck me about the crowd was how kind of normy in internet slang it was, like a lot of very normal people. And yeah, how female. I was asking everyone, what do you reckon the kind of gender ratio is here? And the standard guess was sort of 60-40. And I think He's got so many aspects to him. There's the kind of political anti-woke stuff. There's the kind of put your shoulders up straight and get your life together lifestyle stuff. So I think people are probably there for different reasons. And, you know, everyone's getting things slightly different out of him. Um, Libby, you must, in your time of, uh, of uh, theatre reviewing, got all excited about going to see something and then been bitterly disappointed. Well, the thing is, you, yes, there are sometimes disappointments, but the point about being a critic or indeed a journalist like James Merritt is if you've got a notebook on your lap, you know, you have, you're always excited by the intellectual exercise of working out why this thing is so bad, you know, so that even a bad play can actually be quite exciting. But what I, I liked about this, I, I loved um, James's suggestion that there's a very thin line between Jordan Peterson and Gwyneth Paltrow in this <laughs> business of, you know, change your life, <clears throat> change your life and be different. 
because uh, it's all a bit Billy Graham-ish. And in, in my experience, it's very rarely, and among that of people I know, it's very rarely a sort of Billy Graham-ish extreme sermon which changes people's minds. It's often one small line privately found in a book or heard in a speech or the example of someone who seems to you to have their life and ethics sorted and you'd rather be more like them. The, the, the fires of big sort of public event excitement burn out very quickly, but real lives get changed changed by all sorts of small mm. things which you know maybe people don't even mention because they don't want to be boring evangelists themselves so i i just i don't think these things ever work but i'm sure it was interesting and i mean james writes wonderfully about it i have to say though he had more fun in paris the other week <laughs> <laughs> i suppose james there's an interesting thing about the rise of spoken word events ideas based you know, whether it's old centrist dads, Alistair Campbell and Maurice Stewart, at, you know, selling out the Royal Albert Hall or or Jordan Peterson at the O2. The, maybe it's the it's maybe it is the, the podcastization of Absolutely. People. And this is something that I think I was kind of chiding myself when I turned up to this for how if you work in a newspaper, you can still stay in that mindset that it's all about people writing columns and articles and stuff. When you know, one hopes that columnists are the centre of the world, but I, I, it's not true at all. You know, talking to everybody in the crowd, who did they like? There's a whole universe of, I guess, these kind of strange alt-right celebrities, people like Peterson, people like Ben Shapiro, and you know, I, I, I think for a lot of people, they're not reading, you know, newspapers at all in the mm. traditional in the traditional way we'd once have thought. It's this. That might be in the background. In the foreground is this other universe of yeah. YouTube celebrities. And to be honest, I think saying some fairly dodgy stuff that should that should concern us because, you know, this isn't fact checked and it's not you know it's not really mainstream in our old fashioned sense of that word. It's some really weird stuff. I think quite normal people are now able to access pretty yeah, yeah. easily and without thinking much about it. And I suppose um, uh, just finally, Rachel, that's, that's this weird thing is that you can have someone selling out the O2, and yet you could stand outside the O2 and ask people, "Do you know who Jordan Peterson is?" And pass, you know, people are either really into him, I have no idea who he is. It's not like Anton Deck or Michael McIntyre, who everyone is sort of heard of. Yeah, is it the kind of cult following, yeah. like James says, and it's actually quite frightening. Um, that these people with really quite extreme ideas can become these huge figures. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. Well, I look forward to you, you selling out the O2 soon, James. <laughs> One day. Your columns, just reading out your columns about being a young He wouldn't come. Yeah, Everyone exactly. would come. James Marriott there and Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. You can read them all in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next is The Politics of Vegetables. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chow down my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favourite vegetable. I will have a steak. How'd you like it? Oh, raw, please. And what about the vegetables? Oh, they'll have the same as me. There's something magic. When you grow your own beans, you grow your own potatoes, you grow your own corn, take it home. A lot of people would be eating turnips right now rather than thinking necessarily about aspects of lettuce. The former Prime Minister who herself got beaten by a lettuce. Tony Abbott has talked about why he bit into a raw onion. I normally have them cooked on the barbecue, but uh, I enjoy onion. The peas are good tonight, dear. Mmm, they are good. Your favourite vegetable. And that's without mentioning the flying tomato. <laughs> there we are. You might think that vegetables and uh, politics are like peas in a pod. But it turns out Britain's horticultural sector is a bit of a pickle. So there we heard, uh, that was Margaret Thatcher, obviously not really from Spitting Image. There was Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer, Therese Coffey, Tony Abbott eating an onion like an apple. Um, uh, John Major eating peas on Spitting Image and um, Angela Rayner talking about Dominic Raab allegedly throwing tomatoes. Although, um, might tell you that he didn't actually do that. So we're going to talk about the politics of vegetables right now. There's a lack of seasonal migrant workers, which means crops are going unharvested. Uh, that's only a hot potato. And, it's, and the relationship between supermarkets and farmers is all stick and no carrot. Well, today, a House of Lords committee is calling on the government to hold an olive branch to the horticulturalists. Well, Lord Reesdale, who chairs the committee, spills the beans. I asked him what surprised him most when he was looking into the vegetable industry. It's just the size of the industry more than anything else. Because if you take horticulture, which is, it is fruit and veg, but it's also ornamental plants, it's worth about five billion. Wow. That is a, I mean, that's a huge uh, part of the economy. And you're right, maybe does it, it, the main message that seems to come from across from the report is it just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Let's work through some of the stages of the industry. Let's start sort of on the fields, if you like, then. What are the challenges that the growers of uh, fruit and vegetables are facing right now? I suppose the main challenge if you're growing uh, fruit and veg is the farm gate price you're getting. Uh, it's a very low margin. And of course, that's because we're caught up in a cost of living crisis. So the supermarkets want to drive down prices as much as possible. So they're putting the pressure on the growers. But the evidence we took is that for a six apples, the grower is making three pence profit. Wow. And, and, and then in terms of staffing, there's clearly been an issue over uh, just finding enough people to work to, to plant the crops and then to harvest them. How serious, give us a sense of the, the severity of that situation and, and what might be done about it. 
So last year, £60 million worth of produce was lost in the fields because there was nobody to pick it. And this is the problem. So we need seasonal workers. And we've had seasonal workers for 50, 60 years, seasonal worker schemes. It's nothing new, but it seems to have been turned into a political football, you know, talking about reducing their numbers, where actually we need probably more. But they don't stay in the country. They just come along, do the job and leave. I mean, it does seem crackers to me anyway, and possibly to people listening to this conversation, that the politics of we don't want people coming over here literally leads to millions of pounds worth of fruit and vegetables rotting in the field because there's nobody to harvest it at a time where self-sufficiency and actually just having food to put on the shelves when people are struggling to, you know, to pay for their weekly shop. What do you make of that sort of political decision, if you like, to to, to signal so hard that we want to stop people coming here to the point that food's rotting in fields? It's one of the, I think it's been turned into one of those we want to cut the numbers game because it's an easy one to control in theory. But if you're a farmer and you've got to um, deal with fruit, picking fruit and veg, you really need to know that you're going to get the workers coming from overseas. And that's just not happening at the moment. Okay, so that's the, the situation which sounds pretty tough on, on the fields. Then take us through the process then of how it gets from the farm to the supermarket. Is there anything in that process which you think could change? Yeah, we're, we're um, calling on the government to revisit their review on fairness in the in the supply chain, because one of the bits of evidence we did take was that you know farmers are going to find it very difficult to actually justify planting crops in the first place if they don't know there's going to be a return on investment, and if they don't plant the crops, then we have to get them from overseas, from countries such as Morocco and Spain. Of course, they've got their own problems with climate change due to water issues. So uh, I think what we have to do is say, as a country, we might have to pay a little bit more for food just to make sure that we've got security of supply. I mean, that's going to be a hard sell at a time when there's a cost of living crisis and people already feel like, you know, even even now, despite all the other rises, you know, it's what, about 10, 12% food inflation? You know, it's been double that, I think, very, you know, earlier in the year. It's a hard sell, that, isn't it, to say you've just got to sort of suck it up for the sake of self-sufficiency. Is there something else that can be done either through regulation or subsidy or something that, so it means that, because everyone has to eat and it takes up such a big proportion of people on the lowest incomes. I quite agree. You know, going to the supermarket now is just shocking how how little you actually get compared to a year ago or two years ago. And it is very hard for people. But it's sort of a question of really working with the supermarkets because they're caught in this sort of competitive spiral to say we're going to do it the cheapest and say, as in the continent, well, actually, you have to pay a little bit more because here's the problem. If if we put our farmers out of business, we're going to end up with the situation that happened with eggs, which is, you know, if you go into the supermarket now, you might only be able to find eggs from Poland or Italy. Over the long term, that costs more. And that's because so many egg producers in the UK have gone out of business. Yeah, I mean, you can hardly be a farmer and provide eggs at below the cost of production. A lot of farmers have been hit by the spiraling spiraling energy costs. Uh, That has to be passed on. It it sounds like this is a pretty crucial moment. You you know, you talk about the the energy price, the energy costs have already put egg producers out of business. You've got farmers wondering whether or not to even put 
fruit and veg in the ground because they don't know if they're going to get the money for it afterwards, which actually will end up meaning more imports, which is both bad for the environment and probably more costly. This feels like a crisis. It, it does, but I suppose uh, farmers have been facing this for a very long time. Yeah. But the, uh, I suppose, really, there is positive news, which is, you know, the horticultural sector is automating. It's very vibrant. And some people would say it's, you know, world leader in certain elements. So then what would be your message then to Swella Bravman, the Home Secretary, who's, you know, put a lot of her own political capital on being tough on, on migration? What's your message to her when it comes to making sure there's there's affordable fruit and veg on our shelves? Understanding that seasonal workers is is not a problem uh, would go forward. It's not something that should be used, uh, you know, just as a throwaway in a press release. Would you do the job? Would you? Would you? Have you? I, mean, I assume you've been sort of looked at these things. Would you do the job of picking fruit and veg? Well, I've got an orchard uh, myself, and I I pick the fruit, and it's not easy. And this is one of the points about um, seasonal workers: is they're highly skilled. Yeah, uh, going into a a field and working for a number of hours, and you, you're expected to pick vast amounts of fruit is not easy, and you have to get used to it. Just sending somebody to a field and to pick fruit, they won't be able to provide the amount that the farmer's expecting, and it's really hard work. You mentioned you've got orchards. Are there lots of horticulturalists in Parliament? Um, well, we did have a minister called Lord Gardner uh, <laughs> who dealt with Deborah, who is actually who actually is a farmer. There are quite a few people who deal with this in the House of Lords. I'm, I'm not sure there's a great deal of knowledge in the House of Commons. That may, that may well speak to some of the the, the problems you've been uh, you've been highlighting. Uh, maybe maybe you should have an allotment in Parliament, then they could all everyone can you know during during quiet bits of the day they can you know pick some fruit or dig the turn the soil over. Well, I mean, it'd be excellent if people could actually get onto an allotment because you could actually grow quite a lot of your own fruit and veg. And my wife is very keen on producing vegetables, but uh, I'm not so keen. After she got me to dig the. Uh, potato patch and I gave myself a hernia. Lord Reedsdale, chair of the Horticulture Committee in the House of Lords, which has got a report out today, warning about the state of our fruit and vegetable industry. But Ali Kappa is from the National Farmers Union Horticultural Board, uh, who chairs British apples and pears and grows apples and hops in Worcestershire and joins us now. Hi, Ali. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you? And how is the horticultural sector from your perspective? Does it all ring true, what Lord Reedsdale will say? Yeah, absolutely. I think the House of Lords have grasped the issue very well. Um, we do have an impending crisis in fresh produce and, to some extent, plants and flowers as well. So horticulture is all commercial fruit, vegetables, plants and flowers. Um, and what is causing the crisis is the super inflation that all businesses have had in the last couple of years caused by the war in Ukraine um, and the energy costs escalating. But for our sector, it's energy and labour costs that have gone through the roof. Um, as an apple grower, 40, 40 percent of our turnover is labour cost. And that has gone up in the last couple of years years by over 20 percent um so that's a very big number and then you take energy costs which are very important a lot of fruit and vegetables plants and flowers are either grown using heat and energy or they're stored using heat and energy and those energy costs 
um, we haven't had the same as the rest of UK business. Other UK businesses have had discounts, the ETII scheme, the energy trade and intensive industry scheme that the government launched don't ask me why but it excluded our sector and when a government is trying to bring down food inflation it needs to concentrate on supporting our sector with energy costs so i would say lord threesdale and the house of lords have got it right i think the solutions matt are really simple we need a government that wants to champion this sector. It's only 2% of the farmed land area in the UK. It's 25% of the farm value. And in championing the sector, we need the government to also hold retailers' feet to the fire. The only thing I didn't quite agree with Lord Reesdale on is actually the consumer is paying more. The consumer is paying more. This isn't about the consumer needing to pay more. The shopper is already paying more. But what's happening is the supermarkets are holding on to that and they're not passing it back down to the farm gate. In Apple, the shopper is paying 17% more, according to the Office for National Statistics. And yet growers are getting a static return. 0.8% was the increase in return that growers had in the last 12 months. So, so what's, what's going on there? Is that, supermarket, is that supermarkets thinking, well, everyone knows there's a cost of living crisis because it's constantly on the news and energy crisis in Ukraine and so on. So we can put up the price of Apple 17% and that's just straight profit. It's really complex, this map, because supermarkets no longer take, take the price of a good, put a markup on it and sell it to the consumer. They now talk about a mixed basket of margin. So there's no direct relationship in most retailers' minds to the price that they pay to buy something and the price that they then sell it to the consumer. What we've seen in Apples is that price has gone up by 17% to the shopper, and yet growers have only had 0.8% back. So either the retailer is um, taking more profit or they're subsidising other loss-making things that they're doing. Oh, I don't know what the answer is, but I would say it's not fair. Uh, and it's interesting when we talk about um, the government, to have a Conservative government traditionally uh, covering rural areas, the party of the countryside, they'd see themselves as closer to the NFU, perhaps in the Labour Party in the past. But this is a recurring theme that is sort of a lack of... Uh, attention to detail with things like seasonal migrant workers and not having enough people to harvest this stuff, but also just sort of a, a lack of interest. Is that a fair characterisation of the, the relationship at the moment between farming and, and the Conservative government? Yeah, I'd say it is. I think we've got a government with a cheap food policy that have delegated that cheap food policy to the market. They don't want to get involved. It's too complicated. And a cheap food policy um, means that if you insist on which our government does if you insist on high standards in this country and those standards are good because they mean safe food they mean food that doesn't poison people and they mean food that is of the highest some of the highest standards in the world but if you then have a cheap food policy and you delegate it to the market the market is then left able to import whatever they want from wherever they want and often to a lower standard in your last interview you talked about eggs the eggs that are available on shelf now from Italy and Poland, many of those are coming from um, settings which we wouldn't be allowed to farm in that way in this country. And it's the same with fruit and vegetables. Um, fruit and vegetables that are being imported are often being imported with much lower standards 
than those to which we grow them here in the UK. And I think this is all mad because with climate change upon us and as farmers, we are really feeling it. You know, we had 40 degrees last summer. We've had floods and unbelievable winds this autumn. It is happening in the UK, but we are still going to remain, even with the worst forecasts for climate change, the UK will remain a good place to grow food, a place that is able to grow food. And yet many of the countries that we rely on for imports of fruit and vegetables won't be able to grow fruit and vegetables in the future. They'll either be too hot or they won't have enough water. So I would have thought if you were being strategic about this in government, and you were looking to the long term, you would want to make sure that you were investing in UK fruit and veg, plant and flower production. So not only could we um, support the consumers in our own country with some of the best fruit and vegetables in the world, but that we can also export to those countries that simply won't be able to grow this stuff in the future. It's really fascinating that the change, the, the impact of carbon change on, on, on this whole debate as well. Ali, really good to speak to you. Ali Capita uh, from the uh, NFU's Horticultural uh, Board. Uh, she also grows apples and hops in Worcestershire and shares British apples and pears. Hard to compare. Maybe the answer to all of this is we should be growing our own. Well, let's speak to two uh, politicos who know exactly all about doing that. Jane Merrick is policy editor of the Eye and Keen Allotmateer. Yeah, a lot, yeah, yeah. Do you identify more as an allotment owner than a journalist? Uh, oh, no, journalist first, oh, okay. but yeah, yeah, my hinterland. Your hinterland, is your hinterland. <laughs> and uh, Flick Drummond is Toy MP for me on Valley and also a keen grower. Hi, Flick. Hi, morning. Uh, Flick, what are you growing right now? I know it's not a great time of the year to be asking this question. Well, you say that I was at my allotment yesterday. I'm trying to grow bald beans. And unfortunately, the rain has flooded my that bit of the allotment. So they're underwater at the moment. They are still alive, but they are very much flooded. Oh, dear. What about you, Jane? What have you got on the go? I've, I've got broad beans. My broad beans are actually in a raised bed, so I've avoided the flooding. Uh, well, show off. Uh, so, <laughs> and I've got, um, I planted some garlic about three weeks ago, and it's come up already. But the thing about garlic is you need like a, a long period of cold for the bulbs to grow. So if I was, to swell. I was discussing only yesterday growing garlic, should I be planting it now? Yes, plant it now. Um, while the soil is kind of warmish and then you'll get a bit of green growth and then they'll need the cold, about six weeks of cold weather to, to make the bulbs really swell and then you'll have great garlic next summer. What do you actually plant? Is it seeds? You, no, you plant cloves. So you have to buy, don't just buy any old garlic from the shop, but yeah. buy it from a nursery. Yeah. Um, and you plant, you separate the bulbs into cloves and you plant each individual clove and that one clove, one clove becomes, becomes a whole a bulb. bulb. Yeah, That's amazing. amazing. Have you ever yeah. grown that flick? Yes, no, I've got that in, in raised beds. That hasn't oh, been flooded. Um, but I thought I'd do crop rotation, and so the broad beans have gone into a bit, which has flooded. Last year, <laughs> they were in a raised bed, so now I know better. Crop rotation is important, I know this, because you don't want your potatoes going back in the same yeah. place and all that. My beetroot's been an absolute triumph for this year. We've been pickling it, we've been making soup out of it, we've been roasting it. In fact, that's really easy, turns out, beetroot, isn't it? It's. I, I, well, I, I always find it, it quite easy. I, I find it quite delicious but hard to grow like I can never really get it big enough I don't know whether it's because of the soil or a lot of muck I had to dig a lot of muck in yeah yeah carrots looking all right um uh Flick do you think uh does it does this report warning about the state of the the horticulture does this sort of ring true with your experience your 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 constituents and so on yeah, well, uh, particularly the price of um, food in, in the shops, that's what obviously we hear about. But I, uh, it is really concerning, actually, and interesting listening to Ali as well from her perspective, 
Although I would have thought, because of climate change, our country is going to be one of the best places to grow a lot of uh, fruit and vegetables, and they should start to prepare for that as well, and, and with the innovation. But I do, the government has put a lot of money into research um, and innovation on this particular topic, and it's given huge amounts of money. So I'm fairly optimistic about the future, although I do understand about the pickers, but I think even that, we've begun to address that as well with the... Uh, with the seasonal worker visa, but I mean, I suppose part of it is the, the, the point who is making the the, the the enthusiasm of the Home Secretary in particular uh, for, mm. for appearing very tough. No one should come here, bring up the drawbridge and all that sort of stuff. And actually, it completely flies in the face of well, it's madness of sixty million pounds worth of vegetables are rotting in fields. Yeah, no, I totally agree on that. Um, I don't always see eye to eye with some of her policies on on that particular thing. But we, I mean, I think this we've got about 45,000 cap on seasonal workers. And last year there was only 35,000. So there is the capacity to have more mm. seasonal workers coming over. Uh, um, but, it, you know, it's it's going to be different than it was when we were um, in the EU. And now we've got, we get workers from outside the EU, yeah. which is not a bad thing. Um, Jane, you know of other political fruit and veg growers. There are yes. quite a lot, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Um, there's, uh, well, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn yes, has a famous... Um, I think Tracy Crouch has... has uh, friends, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's talked about her allotment a lot. Um, quite a few political journalists as well. I mean, it's finding the time. I mean, I go on a Sunday. Sunday afternoon, afternoon yeah. is my main thing and sort of evenings in the summer. But you do have to put the work in to get a return and, yeah. and you can never really be fully self-sufficient, which is why kind of we could all be growing yeah. and it takes, a, you know, you do you can save money on things like tomatoes and soft fruit and salad leaves, but you're still going to need your broccoli, potatoes. I tried growing broccoli once. It was an absolute disaster. It's, it's too difficult. eaten by moths, not moths, butterflies. Butterf yeah, yeah, cabbage yeah. white butterflies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I thought we'd round off by playing a game of can you guess the top 10 most popular vegetables? Uh, so this is, according, this is according to YouGov, where they've asked people, do they like this vegetable or not? Uh, so we'll, um, I've got a scoreboard, so just shout out ones you think. Uh, you could go start first, Flip. Uh, broccoli. Broccoli is not in the top ten. Jane. Really? Potato. Potato. Yes, that's top at top. 91% are positive about potatoes. Have another. Okay. Yeah, have another. Right, Flip, your go. Carrots. Carrots, yes. That is number three. 85% uh, th like carrots. Jane. Peas. Uh, peas, yes, 80%. That's uh, five uh, five out of the top ten. Uh, flick. Uh, cabbage. Cabbage. No cabbage. No Ooh. cabbage in like the, the top ten. That's really weird. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, tom tomatoes. Tomatoes, yeah, they are. And I know people will text in and say they're actually a fruit. Uh, yeah, 79% of people like tomatoes. Uh, flick. Yeah, well, avocados are a fruit too. Still no avocado. I don't know what you're eating down there, Flick, but it's not. You're not resonating. You're out of touch when it comes to the nation's vegetables. Oh, yeah. Jane, have another go. Uh, a bean, French beans. Uh, no French beans, Flick. Do we count onions then? Onions, yes, onions, yes. Number four, onions. Well done. Um, you've you're on the scoreboard, uh, Jane. Garlic. This, garlic, no garlic. Oh, I've just realised that we haven't really thought through the format. This could be here for hours, uh, Flick. <laughs> Oh, I'm running out of things. Now, broad beans. No. <laughs> Jane. <laughs> uh, uh, artichokes. No. <laughs> oh, sweet potatoes. What did you say, say again? Sweet potatoes. Not sweet potatoes, no. Are we missing? How many are we missing from the uh, top ten? One, two, three, four. You've only got five so far. Oh, my God. Some of them are uh, subcategories of things we've had. 
Right. Um, sugar snaps. No, this, no. Marge too. This is not. I think we should call it a day on that. Is that what Runner run beans. No, no, other beans. No. The whole nation is shouting <laughs> vegetables at the radio, and they don't really know why. Uh, right. Um, I think. Are we going to call? Is that? Are we, are we calling it at the end? Right. So. Uh, I'll take you through the top ten. In it, ten spring onions with seventy-seven percent. Ridiculous. Uh, nine red peppers, tied with cherry tomatoes on seventy-eight percent. Actual tomatoes on seventy-nine percent. In it, seven. At six, red onions Ooh. with eighty percent. The same as peas with eighty percent. Onions eighty-one percent at four. Carrots at three with eighty-five percent of people liking carrots. New potatoes at two. 86% and then potatoes That's at one. That's a trick question. So, after that, just totting up, won't take long. Jane got three and Flick got two. <laughs> yeah. That but, feels like, but... this feels like a format that could run and run. <laughs> are, these times, are these times readers, though? No, this is you, this is Britain. This is you, this YouGov polling of all, of, of all of Britain. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to this, but this will be picked up by a major TV company in no time at all. Alan Carr will be presented this on a Saturday night. Britain's top 10 favourite vegetables. Uh, Flick, lovely to speak to you. Flick Jubb and Tory MP for me on Valley. Uh, Jay Merrick, policy editor of the iPaper. And uh, Oath, keen allotmenteers. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget, Tuesdays, we bring you How to Win an Election. Uh, just search for How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. It's Peter Madison, Danny Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie guiding you through the highs and lows of uh, the politics of uh, fighting an election campaign. That's every Tuesday. Uh, just search where ever you are listening to this. But for now, from me, Matt Choddies, goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.